0: Guys, good evening. Welcome. Uh, if you're with us online, we, uh, we want to all uh, get into the Word of God together tonight. We're going to be in the Gospel of John uh, this evening, as we have been on uh, Wednesday nights. Chapter 8 is where we're at tonight. Uh, we will be looking at the first uh, 30 verses, uh, 3-0, John chapter 1 through 30, uh, or 8. Uh, verse 1 through 30 here tonight, uh, so uh, it's going to be, uh, uh, I'm looking forward to this, there's a, a few different things that we'll cover in this section as you'll see, but Jesus had been teaching uh, in the temple during the Feast of Tabernacles, and that feast ended, uh, but Jesus would continue teaching at this time, uh, and in this section, one's thing, um, as he does Uh, stands out over and over, something that the Jews failed to recognize, um, and that is that Jesus was sent from the Father to deliver them from their sins. In order to believe in Jesus, we must first recognize where He is from, who sent Him, and why. And so this theme is in the background, of all that we see here tonight as we talk about the, um, the story of the woman caught in adultery, we'll look at that. Then as Jesus, uh, the light of the world, uh, he proclaims himself uh, as the light of the world. We'll get into that uh, as well and how Jesus uh foretells his departure as well. So let's get into it here tonight. As I said, John chapter one, the begin or John chapter eight, the beginning of chapter eight, verse one says this. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. That's really an extension. It's kind of like what? Well, it says in verse 53 everyone went to his own house, but Jesus uh went to the Mount of Olives. So the Feast of Tabernacles ends. Everybody goes home because uh you know most people didn't live in jerusalem and they came from all over not just their homes in jerusalem or around jerusalem but they came from all over uh, not just israel uh, but even jews uh, outside of israel coming to jerusalem three times a year for the feast and so they leave now after the fall feast they go to their house jesus their their homes jesus goes to the mount of olives the mount of olives is of course overlooking um, Jerusalem you when you uh, see if you 've seen the pictures uh, of the Temple Mount and the dome of the rock the the golden dome of the rock ninety nine percent of the time they 're photographs taken from the Mount of olives that 's That's the common vantage point where uh, you see the uh, Shushan Gate, the beautiful gate, uh, which is the eastern, the closed gate, by the way, it's sealed shut. Uh, You see the eastern gate to the temple there. If you see the Temple Mount, the Dome of the Rock, that's almost always, well, that view is always taken uh, from the Mount of Olives unless it's, you know, kind of above than it would be from the Kidron Valley. There is uh, a few other places from the eastern side of the temple that you can take uh, photographs from uh, and get some sort of shot, but it doesn't really compare to the panorama of the temple that you see from the Mount of Olives. And so Jesus, when he stayed in Jerusalem, typically uh, he didn't stay in Jerusalem. He would usually stay in in uh, Bethany and Bethphage, those villages just on the other side of the Mount of Olives. And so Jesus uh, returns to the Mount of Olives and then early in the morning, verse 2, he came again into the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and he taught them. So he rises early in the morning, he comes back from where he's staying in the Mount of Olives, he comes back, you know, everybody has gone home but there's a few people there. They're still lingering, and they're going to be the beneficiaries of Jesus' teaching. And he's teaching them, and the scribes and the Pharisees. As, so, so Jesus is having a Bible study. You know, when you read this, it, it's, um, it, you can probably just read through it, and it's not terribly shocking unless you really stop and think about what happens here. So Jesus is teaching them, and it's kind of this peaceful scene. He's, it's early in the morning, you know, and, and Jesus is teaching them in the temple. And then they drag in this woman uh, caught in adultery. And they bring her in, and they set her in in, Jesus's, uh, in, in the midst of Jesus teaching all of these people. And, and they said to him, verse 4, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act so, you know, um we wouldn't really allow that in here, by the way. You know, we don't allow the service to be interrupted, but uh, you know, uh especially this, but uh Jesus is in the temple, they're just kinda giving an impromptu Bible study, a little less formal, I suppose, and and it's interrupted quite dramatically um by this whole scene here. And and so they bring him this woman, and then they say this, verse 5, Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. So the law actually called for her and the man to be executed. If you take a look over at Leviticus chapter 20, we can refresh ourselves on this aspect of the law, Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, we have the law concerning the uh, punishment of those who commit adultery. And it says, verse 10, the man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death, so the penalty for adultery was death. You know, I don't think that that uh, would totally solve the problem, but I think it would really cut down on adultery, wouldn't it? Um, if the penalty was w- was death, and back then, obviously, it didn't completely cut down on it. Obviously, they didn't necessarily uh, exercise that, uh, but you know, they they bring. Uh, this individual, this woman, to him, and they said that she was caught in the very act. So if that was the case, they had to have known who the man was too, right? Also, you know, I mean, uh, kind of uh, brings up the question, you know, how how were they so uh, fortunate to catch this woman in the very act Uh, you know, uh, it's a little bit bizarre, isn't it? The whole situation. But then why did they leave the man behind and just bring the woman? Because as we just saw in Leviticus, they were both guilty of adultery and the punishment was for them both to be put to death. So at the very least, they should have brought them both. But, you know, you know what kind of culture uh, this was, and so they just bring the woman there, and they're trying to trap Jesus, because if Jesus said, well, you know, you need to do as the law says, they, they need to be put to death, and you need to stone her, um, he would be unmerciful, first of all, they could say, well, you're not, that's not very merciful, second of all, he would be breaking the law, because at this time, the Jews did not have, being occupied by the Romans, the right technically, to exercise capital punishment. The Romans reserved that right as, as the ones who now ruled over them. So Jesus would be seen as unmerciful. Jesus would be seen as unlawful. And they could accuse him either before the people of being unmerciful or before the Romans <clears throat> of, uh, of behaving unlawfully. But if Jesus said, well, let her go, then they could accuse him. Well, you don't, so you don't believe in the law of Moses. So they thought that, um, as, as they did every time, they thought that they had Jesus. Oh, you know, yeah, we, we got him here because there's, there's no good way to answer uh, this question unless you're Jesus. I think for every single other person, yeah, it would be very difficult for us in that situation but not for Jesus, uh, it says that he stooped down and he wrote on the ground with his finger as though he didn't hear. So they're asking Jesus this. I would have loved to have seen that. And he just starts to write on the ground. You know, he starts doing something you know, with his finger on the ground. And so they continued asking him, verse 7, and he raised himself up and he said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. He says, All right, you want to stone her. I tell you what, whoever is a sinless person, that person should get it started. Let the person who is without sin begin the punishment. And then he stooped down again and started riding on the ground further. Now, it doesn't tell us what he was writing, but I have to wonder if maybe when Jesus bit down the first time, if he just started writing with his finger, there may be some different sins, you know, maybe adultery also, or lust, or uh, anger, even murder, or covetousness, or uh, blasphemy, or taking the Lord's name in vain. Perhaps he just maybe started going through the the Ten Commandments. But I have to wonder if he wasn't writing some sins on the ground, and then when he bends down again, I have to wonder, did he start writing names next to those sins? Because notice what happens, verse 9. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. Now, whether Jesus did start writing their names next to the sins that they didn't, well, they were right. No one else knew about them except God, if that's what he was doing. Or whether they were just convicted of their sins, they begin going out oldest to the youngest. Why is that? Well, the older you are, potentially the more opportunity you've had to sin. And the older that you are, particularly with these individuals, probably the more sin that you've had in your life. And so their guilt was greater. Perhaps their name was written next to more sins than the younger people, but they go out from oldest to youngest. And Jesus was left alone. And the woman, standing in the midst, verse 10. And when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are your accusers? Those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? Now, what's also Fascinating here to me is is that everyone left but her. Everybody left. It was just Jesus, and and she didn't leave. Isn't that strikes me as rather odd? Because if you were drugged there and you know in in caught in the act of adultery, and Jesus is having this thing with the scribes and pharisees you know don't you think you would have done one of these kind of start slide you know slip away in the you know in the midst of all of the you know oh this is my chance to get out of here this is my chance to make an exit and just maybe i can just slip away with all of these people and this whole thing goes away but she stayed That's fascinating. She's the only one that that stayed. Here's what I found. Our sin will either drive us from Jesus or to Jesus. Our sin will either drive us away from Jesus or drive us closer to Him. And for this woman, she was the only one. She was perhaps... In this instance, at this moment in time, for that moment, she was arguably the most guilty, and yet they all leave, and she stays. I've seen that quite a bit, unfortunately. People get, you know, they get uh, caught up in things, and then eventually God, you know, He... uh, He exposes what's going on. And they either, well, in my experience, if they have to be exposed, there's a deeper problem and it's probably not going to be resolved very well. In other words, if they didn't come clean on their own, but God had to bust them, there's a there's a bigger heart problem it's probably not going to wind up very well but generally speaking when that kind of thing happens there are two reactions they either withdraw from the church eventually they're they're gone they disappear or they draw closer to the lord they're truly repentant and sorrowful over their sin they they have genuine Shame before God and they repent of their sin and they draw near to God. You know, it's kind of like Adam there in, in the garden. What what happened with Adam? He and Eve, of course, sinned, and then he hid himself. Right? He he hid himself from God. And people have one of those two reactions. They sin and their sin is exposed and they either run from God and they try to hide themselves from God or they just come to God and they fall before Him as this woman does. They fall upon His mercy and His grace and they draw near to Him. And unfortunately, she's she's the only one. But you notice that when you have that reaction, when you, when you choose that path, you are met squarely by the grace and the mercy of God and His Son, Jesus Christ. And I love G- what Jesus says. He says, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? This is a picture of us in heaven. Where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And then like the woman, we will say, no one, Lord. There's no one who condemns us. Because as Romans teaches us, as Paul explains, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 8, verse One, Paul writes, he says, There is therefore, now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, but here's an important part that we'll also see in the story, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And in verse 33 of Romans chapter 8, verses 33 and 34 Paul says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. And so this woman is a, is a type, is a picture, is a reminder of what it will be like for us in heaven. Where are your accusers? I guess they're all gone. Does no one, is no one accusing you? No one. And so Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. Now, a lot of people want to acknowledge the first part of what Jesus said, but they fail to see the second part of what Jesus said. He said, I don't condemn you, but he also said, go and sin no more. You see, Jesus forgave her, but he also didn't condone her sin. He called her to a new life. And that's the same thing that Paul mentioned there uh, in Romans. He said this. Let's, let's think about it. Let's look at it again. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So having truly repented of our sins, having truly come to Christ and received his forgiveness, we then walk in newness of life, not in in, in uh, the flesh. We walk in the newness of life in Christ, in, in the Spirit. And if we say that we believe in Jesus Christ, that we've received Jesus Christ, but yet we continue on in those old ways, then we've got to stop and take a closer look, and we've got to wonder, have we just deceived ourselves? Have we simply fooled ourselves? And so Jesus forgave her, but he also called her to walk in newness of life and to sin no more. And so Continuing on then, John chapter 8, verse 12. Then Jesus spoke to them again. So he's teaching further uh, there. And he says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So this really builds off of what he just said. Go and sin no more. So if you've received that forgiveness of Christ, now you're called to walk not in darkness but to have the light of life so not long after it doesn't necessarily mean that it's immediately after but jesus encounters another group and 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 perhaps uh, this is why the spirit through john decides to kind of couple this teaching because it happened one not long after, but two thematically, it flows out of what just happened. And so uh, John places it here. We don't know exactly how long, but he just tells us, uh, you know, uh, that it was uh, not that long after. And so Jesus elaborates on the importance of not walking in darkness while following him. In fact, we can't follow Jesus and walk in darkness. John First uh, John chapter one verse uh, five if you want to take a look over there with me. First John chapter one verse five verses five through seven. <clears throat> John writes this, he says, uh, This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And maybe our lie is to ourselves first and foremost. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So we see the importance of walking in the newness of life, walking in the light. If we walk in the light, then the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us. Now, we're not saved because we walk in the light. We're saved because we're cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. But if we say that we're cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ, the verification of that is is that we walk in the light. So these two are very closely tied there, uh, one reveals the validity, the truth uh, of the other, namely of our salvation. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 18, he says this, he writes this, We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. So we see that Believers who have placed their faith truly in Jesus Christ continue in the light. They don't continue in darkness. And he's the light, and the light is where Jesus is leading. And many profess to know Jesus, but they continue in sin, and the scripture tells us that they're not really following Jesus Christ. Now, when you look at that, you need to be very careful. I remember many years ago, I was in school with other guys and who were all, uh, had a desire to be in the ministry. And there was one guy that one day showed up and he declared, I forget the amount of time, but he said, you know, <clears throat> he said, I haven't sinned in a month. And one guy said, you just did. He was reading the works of Charles Finney at the time, and one of the errors of Finney, as I recall, was that he taught the incorrect doctrine of sinless perfection. That in this life, you could achieve a state of sinlessness. Not that you should just desire that, but that you could actually get there. Uh, I'm here to confidently declare to you that you cannot. I would like to. I endeavor to, but the reality is is that in this life, hopefully less and less, we will sin. We still have a sin nature. We're still battling the flesh. As Paul says in Romans chapter 7, he says, the good that I will to do, I do not do. The evil I will not to do, that I practice. Oh, wretched man, who will deliver me from this body of sin and death? You see, God will deliver us and There will come that point, either in death or in the rapture, when we will achieve that final state of of sanctification and holiness. But right now, we are a work in progress. And we push harder and harder, and we desire it more and more. And we don't, because of this reality, accept sin. But also, we don't live under the illusion that we have achieved any state of sinlessness. Any perfection in sin. In this life. So don't be confused. You must take in the sum total of Scripture and realize that when the Bible is talking about not continuing in sin, when the Bible is talking about not sinning, when the Bible is talking about walking in the light, the implication is not that you will never sin. That's the hope, that's the goal, that's the desire, but that's not the reality. The idea is is that you're not walking in darkness and practicing sin. In other words, you're not just going out and willfully choosing to sin and living a lifestyle of sin in one form or another or in many forms. In Galatians chapter 5, if you want to turn over there with me. In Galatians chapter 5, we have... The fruit of the Spirit and we also have in verse 19, starting in verse 19, in contrast, the works of the flesh. The fruit of the Spirit and the works of the spl- of the flesh. Interesting uh, description, not done by accident. Galatians chapter 5 verse 19, Paul again says this, He says, now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery. We've talked about that already tonight. Fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. That's quite a list. And if there was something on there, uh, you can just throw, that, something that's not on there, uh, you said, I guess that's okay, and the light covers it. it. doesn't. It's not okay. But there's so many things there. Adultery. We've already covered that tonight. Fornication. Sex outside of marriage. Uh, uncleanness. Uh, again, uh, that's a moral uncleanness. A lewdness, Idolatry. Sorcery. Sorcery, the word there, actually, uh, not so much uh, Harry Potter kind of stuff. Uh, not so much you're a wizard, Harry. Uh, you know, this is, uh, this is uh, drugs. Pharmakia is the, is the word there. So, yes, it can include sorcery, but also drugs. And do you suppose that God makes a distinction? He says, oh, you have a prescription for that? Oh, I'm okay with it. No. It's abuse of drugs. I'm not saying that all drugs, that those that have a specific for a, for a set period of time uh, medical purpose, but so many things today. Constantly learning about this new one that people are abusing, and they go and they get prescriptions uh, for them. Same thing. Just, you know, society says that it's legal. Uh, and then... There's other things, contentions and jealousies, outbursts of wrath, that lack of self control, selfish ambitions, dissensions. You know, people that go in and they cause arguments in families, in churches, in, in businesses, heresies. Um, people that think it's okay to go around teaching these false things, and envy, murder, drunkenness. Wow, you know, uh, I tell you what, uh we live in a time of revival of drunkenness in 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 this culture. And uh so many people say, Well, I I, I don't get drunk. You know, if if I had a dollar for every time, you know, someone drank but supposedly didn't get drunk that actually did get drunk, uh You know, I've run into so many people that didn't think that they were affected, weren't uh, inebriated in some way with their drinking. That's why people do it. You know, they 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 drink because they don't want to turn to God to resolve their issues. They have a tough day, and instead of going before the Lord and falling on their knees and praying and seeking the Lord, they, I'll just have a drink. I'll feel a little bit better as a result of this. Well, you know, uh, the Bible says, do not be filled with wine, which is intoxication, but be filled with the Spirit. And I will tell you that the degree to which you fill yourself with one limits your ability to be filled with the other. There's only so much full and full. You know what I mean? You, you, you fill yourself up with that, you can't be filled with the Spirit. You're already full. That space is, is now taken. And so he lists a whole bunch of things, but then he says this, Of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Wow. So, you know, you got a couple and they're living together, but they're going to church. Fooling themselves, thinking, yeah, I'm going to church, I'm right with God, but they're living in fornication. Not me, what does the Bible say? Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So, it's not saying that anybody who has ever been a fornicator or committed fornication and repented of that sin is going to hell. It's saying those who are practicing those things at that time are not saved because they're living in that lifestyle and that's just one of many things you know we there's no reason to just single out and to focus on one of these over any of the other ones all of them will do the job in ruining you eternally all of them they're equally effective at that and that's the really that should be the really scary part For anyone who's practicing, but the key there is practicing these things. This is their lifestyle. This is their day in and day out. This is the way that they live their life. They're walking in darkness. It's not as though they sinned and they stepped into darkness for a moment and stepped back out in deep humiliation and shame and repentance and going before the Lord. But they stay in the dark. They live in the dark. They practice darkness. You can't be in the dark and in the light. You're either following Jesus in the light or you're living in the darkness. And that's what what Jesus is, is teaching these folks here. And in verse 13, it says, The Pharisees therefore said to him, You bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. So now, I guess they didn't like that topic of conversation and so they uh try to change the subject hey you bear witness of yourself you're lying so uh first of all in a way they're pointing out that one person's testimony uh was insufficient in deuteronomy chapter 19 there in in verse 15 the law says that one witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two, or preferably the idea is three witnesses, the matter shall be established. So to establish anything, you had to have at least two. Three was even better in terms of witnesses. But uh, it wasn't that anything said by a a single lone person wasn't true. It's just that under the law, it needed corroboration. So they add something here. You bear witness of yourself, your witness isn't true. That's not what the scripture said. The scripture just said for something to be validated, you need two or three. It doesn't mean that the one was lying until another person shows up and then it suddenly became true or a third person showed up. And so Jesus had already dealt with this back in chapter 5 in verses 31 through 47 because he had John the Baptist who bore witness of him. His works every single day were bearing witness of him. And then the Father had borne witness of him uh, both at his baptism and also through his word. So Jesus actually had three independent witnesses of who he said he was in addition to himself. And so then he corrects them in verse 14. He says, even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. You got that part wrong, guys. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from and where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. They judge according to appearances. Jesus' purpose in coming the first time was not to judge, but was to save. That's another thing that people get wrong. They, they think, well, you know, Jesus was forgiving. They missed the part that he said, go and sin no more. They also realized that Jesus came to forgive, but they failed to realize that he's going to return to judge. But his coming the first time was to save. And the second time it will be to judge. Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31, we see that Paul, this is Paul, by the way, preaching in Athens. He's talking about, you know, how in times past God was really patient um, with people, particularly non-Jews, but now He, with the coming of His Son and the specific revelation of His Son, was calling men everywhere to repent because He has appointed Acts chapter 17, verse 31, a day on which he, that is Christ, will judge the world in righteousness, which God will judge the world in righteousness by the man Christ whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, Paul also writes this. He says, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and at his kingdom. So he will return to judge, but his purpose at that time was to save, verse 16, John chapter 8, verse 16. And yet if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I'm not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. And it is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. And they said to him, Where is your Father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my Father. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. So, All of this, Jesus teaching after tabernacles there in the temple. At this point, he's in the treasury there. Verse 21, Jesus said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. So he was going to die. He was going to be buried. He was going to rise again. He was going to ascend to the Father And they were rejecting him and they would die in their sins. But it's really interesting there because if you look closer at that, he says, I am going away and you will seek me. It's a very interesting thing for Jesus to say. I am going away and you will seek me. Jesus doesn't mean that literally he would go away and they would be specifically looking for him. The idea is is that he was going away, but they would continue looking for the Messiah. Jews are still looking for the Messiah today, still waiting. And by the way, if you look at the prophecies of Scripture, like Daniel chapter 9, if it wasn't Jesus, he's really late. And it's a very interesting conversation to have with Jewish people who Understand something of their own Jewish writings about passages like Daniel chapter 9 and others, and concerning the coming of the Messiah. Because the question inevitably comes up well, if not Jesus, then who? Because the time was past, so, so if Jesus wasn't the Messiah, who was the other person right around that time that came that fulfilled all of the prophecies over 300 concerning the Messiah that Jesus fulfilled? But somehow that escapes them. And they're still looking, those who are have some semblance of devotion, they're still looking, waiting for some kind of Messiah who's quite different than the Messiah of God's word. And Jesus told them, he says, I'm, I'm going away and you will seek me. Isn't it interesting? They would seek him, but they would die in their sins because they would seek him from hypocrisy and they would seek him while he already came, refusing to receive the, the true one sent from the Father. And so if they died in their sins, he says, where I go, you cannot come. So if they died in their sins, they would not be able to follow him into God's kingdom. You see, that's, that's, you know, that's the point of no return. If you die in your sins. In other words, if you die without Jesus Christ, you've died in your sins. And, and, and that's the point at which nothing can be done about your sin anymore. It is in this life and this life alone we must turn to Christ in order to receive His forgiveness for our sins. And so, then moving down to verse 24, He says, Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. And so, verse 26, He says, I have many things to say and to judge concerning you, but He who sent Me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. So there were many other judgments that he had for the Pharisees and the judgments he had already given were true and were from the Father. They didn't understand that he spoke to them of the Father. Verse 28, And Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And that I do nothing of myself But as my father taught me, I speak these things. So in his crucifixion, many would realize at that point the truth of the things he was saying. Of course, we know the signs that surrounded the the crucifixion. There was darkness. There was an earthquake. The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The graves, graves were opened and people walked out. People who had been dead for a while just, oh, hey, you know, you're alive. Dead people walking around. And then, of course, there was, that wasn't a resurrection. That was a resuscitation. Those people would have died again. But Jesus was resurrected. The firstborn, in fact, the scripture says the only one to this point resurrected from the dead. There was his resurrection. And I suspect that also their consciences got involved. And after they had killed Jesus, they saw all of these things and their consciences began to perhaps for some of them who had one, get the best of them. And they realized as the centurion did, truly this was the son of God. We have made a terrible mistake. Some of them as tradition holds it couldn't. Live with that, took their own lives. Some of them doubled down and went on despite what they knew, and some of them, like Paul, turned to Christ. And so he continues on, verse 29, and he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. And as he spoke these words, many believed in him. Now, unfortunately, as we've seen many times, while it's easy to get excited about that phrase that many believed in him, uh, it's not always what we might think. We'll talk more about that uh, next time. But Jesus came forth from the Father. He was about to return to the Father. And and they needed to receive Jesus. Him and His words and turn to Him. But their time was just about up. And now, obviously today, their time is up. And so we, today, must make sure. We must make sure that we recognize, first of all, where Jesus is from. That He has been sent forth from the Father. And that he has been sent forth to rescue us and to deliver us from our sins. And we need to make sure that we have truly received that. And the way that we know is very easy. Are we walking in the light or are we not? Not just, yeah, I understand that intellectually. I even understand that spiritually. But have I received that? Am I walking in the light of Jesus Christ? Am I truly following Him? Or is it something else that's going on in my life? Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for Your Word here this evening. We pray that not only would we understand these things, but Lord, that Having understood who Jesus is, who sent him, why he came, having received him, that we are truly following him. That we are walking in his light. That we are walking in the Spirit. That we are not practicing anything. In the form of darkness. As our heads are bowed tonight. I want to extend an invitation to you. Only you know where you're at. You and God. Only you know. Whether or not you've placed your faith in Christ. Only you know whether or not you're on that lighted path. Whether. God and His Word are a lamp unto your feet. But I can tell you this, that if you haven't given your life to Christ, there's nothing stopping you, except for maybe you, from changing that tonight. There's nothing stopping you from surrendering to Him. And you should know that if you do, He will receive you. He won't turn you away. He just says, do you believe in me? Do you receive my sacrifice? Will you repent of your sin? Will you turn to me? Will you give your life to me? Will you you walk in my light? And if you can say to that, yes, then you need to give your life to Christ tonight if you haven't. And I'd like to pray with you as we close right now. God's speaking to your heart, then I don't want you to have any kind of fear or anything like that. I just want you to, to, to you, just to commune with him and to pray. And I'd like to lead a prayer, lead you in a prayer tonight as we wrap up. So if you'd like to do that, you just slip up your hand where you are. God's gonna hear your prayer. Christ is gonna come in. You're gonna be a new creation. Jesus said you'll be born again, born anew of the Spirit. So you take this opportunity now if you haven't. Ah, Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your mercy and your patience every day with us, Lord. And we ask you, strengthen us. Keep us in your light. Keep us close to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand, guys. Let's worship.